The scripture says that God's thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. There is a certain um, irony to God's thoughts and his ways when you look at it from a human perspective. That will always be the case. The way God sees things and the way God does things are different than we as human beings. Uh, this fall, we have been looking at uh, the prophet Zechariah in the Old Testament. It is the next to last book. There's 14 chapters in the book of uh, Zechariah. The theme is the glory in small things. And even that title speaks of this certain irony between our existence and who God is and how God thinks and how he works, that God is the God who brings glory to what, from a human perspective, we would look at as, as small things, the glory in small things. And we've been tracing out that theme throughout the book of Zechariah and applying it to our lives 2,500 years later. And quite honestly, on the other side of the cross, it's rather interesting that the book of Zechariah has, uh, I was about to say per capita, that's not uh, exactly it. It has as great a frequency of messianic prophecies as any book in the Old Testament. And it, obviously it's not as long as Isaiah, which has 66 chapters. So it doesn't have as much, but per chapter it really has a lot. And also the book of Psalms, 150 chapters in Psalms. Zechariah only has 58, but there are so many uh, messianic uh, prophecies in the book of Zechariah, and it's, it's where we come to today. Uh, we've looked at the first eight chapters. We have three more weeks, and so even though there's six chapters, we're going to hit some, some highlights in these last six chapters, and we are going to trace a theme in these last six chapters, and I want to set this up today, and Byron's going to be preaching next week, and then I have one more sermon uh, in this series, the, last, uh, the first Sunday of, of November. But there is a theme that we're going to trace through Zechariah 9 through 14, and it is about the coming kingdom of God. Uh, it's my job as a pastor and as a preacher uh, to look at the Scripture and to help first myself and then you understand what it was that God was communicating through that. Uh, in Zechariah 9 through 14, we come to a section of the prophecies that are not dated most scholars believe that Zechariah 1 through 8 uh, were scriptures or, or prophecies during the time of the children of Israel rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. And so scholars would uh, conjecture that when you come to Zechariah 9 through 14 that has no dates, it is after the time that the children of Israel have rebuilt the temple. Now, if you've been here all of these weeks, you go, wait a second, this was the big, this was the big idea. 
that God was speaking to them in the midst of rebuilding the temple and, and what it was that God had to say for them in that time. And all of a sudden we come to Zechariah 9 and we're just going to presuppose this morning that the temple has been rebuilt. It's like, wait a second, we've done what God told us to do. What more could there be to do? What else does God have to say to us? But it is significant that as we will, the next three weeks, trace through this theme of the last six chapters of the coming kingdom of God, that it communicates a big idea. And it is this, that God's plan includes more than the rebuilding of the temple. I need, to, I need you to get that thought in your mind that God's plan his purpose was more than just rebuilding the temple God was also building a kingdom there's a difference the temple was the place of worship they already had a high priest set up the sacrificial system was working they came to that place of course 70 years before this uh, the Babylonians had come in and destroyed everything, the city, uh, the temple, their way of life. They had hauled off uh, the people of the land into captivity. Seventy years later, God begins to restore all of that. And he says to the people, I want you to rebuild the temple. Uh, but there was more. Um, there was a kingdom that God was also wanting to build. Very significant. And there's a, there's a big idea at this point. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Uh, there is this call to rejoice, to shout. And it comes from actually a void in their life because the, the people in Zechariah's day had no king. In fact, the dates of the other prophecies were dated by the Persian kings because there was no Jewish king, which is already just like all the Old Testament is dated by the Old Testament kings. And all of a sudden, no, there is no king. But the king is coming. And so rejoice and shout. Uh, he says in that, that phrase, behold, your king. This is not the Persian king. No, to God's people, no, this is your king. And notice it says that the king is coming to you. Well, where are they? Well, that's already been told to us in the first two phrases of nine when it says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, which was the holy mountain where the temple set, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. It's in the city of Jerusalem. Where was the king? What was the prophecy saying? Where was the king geographically coming to? He was coming not just to Jerusalem. He was coming to the temple mount. He is described as a king. This scripture along with Many others in the Old Testament are what would be called messianic scriptures because they speak of the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, who is coming. And he is first described 
as a king. In those last few phrases, though, it says, it, it gives us his character. He is just, which means that his life lined up with God's standards. He, was, he is a king who will be just. But it not only speaks to his character, but that next phrase talks about his purpose. He is just in having salvation. This king who is coming, his coming to bring salvation. Uh, there's something we will see as these, we hit some highlights in these next couple chapters. But to say that the king is coming for salvation denotes that he is coming for the needs of others, not his own need or his own ego. And so when he says in that next phrase, so it says he is just his character. He is, here's his purpose, having salvation. But it speaks about his attitude, lowly. It says that he is lowly. Um, the word I thought that contrasted this was he is not pompous. It's not about his ego. And actually, this is a little bit of a turn. I think, you know, the people like Zacharias, you know, saying this, and they're all, yeah, rejoice, O daughter of Zion, shout. You people of Jerusalem, your king is coming. Yes, he's just, he's bringing salvation. And they filled in the blanks of what salvation deliverance meant to them, which was primarily in the physical realm. But all of a sudden, then it's like lowly. Lowly? Riding on a donkey? Ho, 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 wait a second. There is like this curve in the road in the prophetic word. It's like... Wait a second, that's not what we were expecting because that is not our expectation of what we think we need. But what did I say from the very beginning? God's thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. And when God begins to bring salvation, he does not do it like we think we need, but how God knows we need it. And so... There is this unexpected turn in the prophecy that he is, he is lowly. Uh, he demonstrates this by riding not on a war horse, but it says that when he comes to the temple mount, he will be riding a lowly donkey. I don't know. I've never rode a donkey before. Anybody in the crowd? I don't know. I rode a camel in the Holy Lands. I'm hoping in a couple weeks to do that again. Uh, never a donkey, I don't know. But you know, the contrast here, and he's actually going to say it in the next verse, but it's not like the king is coming on a war horse, power, military. No, there's something being communicated when it says that he is lowly and he is riding on a donkey. This is unexpected. Uh, but it's the very thing that 500 years later, that Jesus of Nazareth did. And actually what we're going to see in the next three weeks is there is a story that is unfolding. And the first part of the story is here. You can read about it in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, that the last week of Jesus' ministry, Jesus intentionally sends two of his disciples to go and get a donkey 
He's up on the Mount of Olives. He's going to come across the Kidron Valley, across the Kidron Valley, directly into the temple through the golden or the beautiful gate. And what's he going to ride? He's going to ride a donkey. And when Matthew records it, so Jesus says to the guys, no, I need you to, and it's like, man, the crowds were gathering, they're pumped. Jesus of Nazareth, the great teacher, is here. And it's like, get a donkey. Why? Matthew says, because of Zechariah 9, 9. Because there was something that Jesus was projecting, not only about his character and his mission, but also his kingdom. It's not what you expected. Um, and so Jesus lives out this prophecy 500 years later in what we call his triumphal entry. His kingdom was to be a kingdom of peace and not war. It was to be worldwide. And so in verse 10, Zechariah 9, 10, it says, I will cut off chariots from Ephraim, the horse from Jerusalem. These are all military um, devices. The battle bow shall be cut off. God says, I'm going to eliminate all of that, or this king will. He, this messianic figure, the king, will speak peace to the nations. Not war, but peace. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. It will be worldwide. Verse 11, as for you also because of the blood of your covenant. And so this king who is coming will establish a covenant through blood. We don't know what that means yet. But, he will set, he, but his salvation will set the captives free. He says in 11, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit, which was a, a cistern without water. Verse 12, return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today, I declare that I will restore double to you. This messianic figure who is prophesied here, that king who is coming, uh, is coming to bring salvation. And so in verse 16 of 9, he says, the Lord their God will save them in that day. God is going to bring salvation. God is going to bring deliverance. But all of a sudden, the imagery of this passage, this identity of the king begins to change because all of a sudden, in the prophecy, the king it's almost as if God says you're thinking of a king, but you're thinking of the wrong imagery because a king was, was a secular thing. In fact, if you think back in Israel's history, God's, God's initial will was not that they would have a king. God said, because I'm going to be your king. And... It becomes all, God said all the nations of the world have a king. But God gives him a king in Saul and Saul doesn't work out because he's not a man after God's own heart and God sends David a man after God's own heart and he becomes the epitome of what it means to be a king. But God begins to say, ah, you're thinking the wrong thing when I use the term king. And so he begins to talk in terms of sheep and shepherds. So in verse 16, the Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people, as the flock of his people. 
And it implies that, this, that God, this messianic figure, will treat the people as they are, his flock, as sheep. In God's kingdom, the king is a shepherd who will save his people, will give his life as a shepherd gives its life for the sheep. This was a natural connection for the Jewish people because King David had been a shepherd. And it's like God says, no, the metaphor is not really about a king, even though we don't have any problem with this messianic figure being called a king, but it's really more what you will understand is that he is a shepherd. And so we could look at the Old Testament scriptures and see that many times the Jewish leaders were described as shepherds. But they understood in their way of life that the shepherd always gives his life for the, for the benefit of the sheep. And so when we move from king to shepherd, this begins to clarify this messianic figure's character, his attitude, and his mission. Yes, he will be just. He will be having salvation. He will be lowly. He said, you need to think of him as a shepherd. And they talked about this, that their leaders would be a shepherd. And ultimately, here they're saying, this messianic figure will be like a shepherd more than what you think of in worldly terms as a king so as it describes David's uh, reign uh, in the last verse of Psalm 78, verse 72, when it's talking about David being their king, and it says, referring to David, and he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart, and he guided them by the skillfulness of of his hands. David was like a shepherd, integrity of heart and skillfulness of hand. Think about the qualities of a shepherd that we see as David wrote about the 23rd Psalm. And just look at that. What does it reveal about a shepherd's character and how he gives his life for the sheep? When David says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Why? Because the Lord is my shepherd. And all those things that are described in the 23rd Psalm are how a shepherd gives his life for his sheep. Jesus spoke to the people in Matthew 11, and he said, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am lowly 
and gentle in heart. That's what Jesus said about himself. And Jesus lives out that character of a good shepherd. Uh, in, in Zechariah chapter 10, he speaks of the people being without, like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, in Zechariah 11, or I'm sorry, Zechariah 10, verse 2, the second half of that, it says, Therefore the people wind their way like sheep. They are in trouble because there is no shepherd. And so Jesus would say, there's a, there's a point that as Matthew writes about what Jesus was doing in Matthew 9, uh, maybe about th- verse 35, he says, and Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so it describes it here. Uh, but it goes on in verse 3 and it says, my anger is kindled against the shepherds. And I will punish the goat herds. For the Lord of hosts will visit his flock, the house of Judah. It's not so much that the people don't have a shepherd as they don't have the right kind of shepherd. It's not a good shepherd. And so all of a sudden, as the, as, as the prophetic story is unfolding of what will happen 500 years later, yes, He will come and he will be riding on a donkey and he will be just. He will be having salvation. He will be lowly and he will come to the temple mount. But he will come into the context of people that are like sheep without a shepherd or really what we need to say, people who are led by leaders who do not have their best interest at heart. They are bad shepherds. That's the context that this messianic figure comes into but he comes to save, and so it says in 10.6, I will strengthen the house of Judah. I will save the house of Joseph and bring them back because I have mercy on them. They shall be as though I had not cast them aside, for I am the Lord their God, and I will hear them. When we come to chapter 11, we see this contrast between the good and the bad shepherds. And God calls Zechariah to be this, fill this role as the good shepherd. And so he writes it from a first person perspective. But in 11, 4 and 5, you see this contrast between the good and the bad shepherd. Verse 4, thus says the Lord my God, feed the flock for slaughter. And notice what he means by that in verse 5. Whose owners slaughter them and feel no guilt. Those who sell them, saying, Blessed be the Lord, for I am rich, and their shepherds do not pity them. The messianic figure will come into the context in which there are bad shepherds who use the sheep for their own benefit. In fact, if you go back in the other prophetic scriptures, I think there's some in Jeremiah, but also in Ezekiel 34, I know that he talks about the bad shepherd. Uh, The good shepherd lives for the life of the sheep and shears the sheep and uses the wool, but it's all about the health and the growth, uh, the well-being of the sheep. But the bad shepherd will slaughter the sheep because you can get get money for the meat. But you know what happens when you kill a sheep? 
It doesn't grow wool anymore. I'm sorry, that was a little Daryl Smith humor. No, it's dead. Okay, it's not growing any more wool. And that's what a person who is short-sighted and does not care about the sheep, he just uses the sheep for his own benefit. And you see that. And so that's the, he comes into that contact, context, but there is a contrast between the good and the bad shepherd. In verse 8, though, we see it reaches to a conflict. So it says in verse 8 of Zechariah 11, I dismiss the three shepherds. In one month, my soul loathed them, and their soul abhorred me. There is this conflict that is described in the, prof- in the prophecy that there will be uh, a conflict between the good and the bad shepherd. And all of a sudden, we come to those scriptures you're going to recognize in Zechariah 11, verse 12. And really what it describes is the bad shepherds will pay off the good shepherd and just say we we want to get rid of you what will it cost us and in 11 12 it says then I said to them if it is agreeable to you give me my wages and if not refrain so they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver not 20 not 40 not 25 not 35 30 pieces of silver that's what they paid the good shepherd to pay him off and to get rid of him in the Old Testament it was the amount that um, uh, I'm sorry um, uh, Exodus 21 34 if your bull gores a slave and kills the slave, you are obligated to pay 30 pieces of silver for that slave's life. What was the good shepherd's life worth? Hmm. The price of a slave, a couple thousand dollars. That's how much they valued that slave in the context of Zechariah 11. And in verse 13 it says, And the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. It, uh, it's as if, it, if that's what my life is worth to you, just keep it then. That's Daryl Smith's inflection and But there is this conflict and what we need to understand today at this point is that the shepherd leaders in the day in which this messianic figure the good shepherd comes will reject the good shepherd and will pay him off for 30 pieces of silver and so we see in Matthew's account in verse chapter 27 of Matthew when Judas comes to the religious leaders and say how much will you give me to turn him over not 20 not 40 not 25 not 35 we will give you 30 pieces of silver 
That's what this man's life is worth to us a couple thousand dollars. The cost, the price of a slave who has died. And we know in that account in Matthew that after Judas saw how it all went down, that Judas goes back and he casts the money back to them. There's some other details of that story I don't have time about the potter to delve into today. But there is this one final description of the bad shepherds in 15, 16, and 17. It says, And the Lord said to me, Next, take for yourself the implements of a foolish shepherd. For indeed, I will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, nor heal those that are broken, nor feed those that, are, that still stand. But he will eat the flesh of the fat and tear their hooves in pieces. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye. His arm shall be completely wither, uh, and his right eye shall be totally blinded. The good shepherd will come into the context of leaders who are bad shepherds. There will be a contrast between the good and the bad shepherd. And as the story unfolds, there will be a conflict in which the bad shepherds will reject the good shepherd. The very one that God sent for salvation. And we come to the end of chapter 11 and my assignment for the day and we pause the story. Hmm. I'm not going to tell you the ending today. <laughs> Some of you know it. But the prophetic story as it begins to unfold in Zechariah 9, 10, and 11 and forward is your king is coming. And he will come to the temple mount on a donkey. He will be a man of peace. And he will be described as the good shepherd. But the powers that be will be the bad shepherds. And even though he comes for salvation, they will reject him. And we just pause the story there. You go, wait a second, this is not how, I don't, I don't really think from a human perspective, this is the way the story ought to unfold. He should not be lowly, and you can't have the good shepherd coming and being rejected by the powers that be. How is this story going to play out for salvation? You know, it reminds me of what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53. And I can't read the whole chapter or, or you will know how the story comes out. But in Isaiah 53, in those early verses, it says, He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when they see him, there is no beauty that, he should, that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. All I can tell you at this point is all the details of the prophecies 
point to one person, and that is Jesus of Nazareth, who even to this point has fulfilled all of those prophecies and more that will come in the last three chapters. This is what I would say to you today. Everything points to Jesus. God brings glory in small things. He is not what we would expect. He was not what the people of his day expected. But God's thoughts are not our thoughts. And his ways are not our ways. But you begin to see that there is one person and only one person through whom we find salvation. And it is the one who fulfills these. And it's what the disciples told the religious leaders in their day. There is salvation in no other. For there is no other name given among men by which you must be saved. When you begin to, friends, when you begin to put it together, everything points to Jesus. There is no other way. And my question is, have you come to the place in your life where you realize that Jesus is the only answer? And have you come to the place where you surrendered your own pursuit, what made sense to you, how you would have done salvation to say no. Mm -mm. It's about what God said and what God prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years ago before it ever came about through Jesus. Would you stand with me today? And Father, today we, we thank you for Jesus. Father, we pray that every person in this room would come to the place in their life would they would realize that it is only through Jesus, the one that God planned for hundreds and thousands of years in advance to be the only way of salvation. Father, I pray that every person in this room not only would know that, but Father would come to the place of surrender, to trust in him, as God's provision of salvation. So, Father, today we thank you for loving us and we thank you for Jesus being that good shepherd who gave his life for us. And so, Father, we, we thank you for that and we pray all this in his name, the name of Jesus, amen.